Chapter seventy one of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume two, twenty years after, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Port Wine. In ten minutes the masters slept, not so the servants. Hungry and more thirsty than hungry, Blaisois and Mousqueton set themselves to preparing their bed, which consisted of a plank and a valise. On a hanging table, which swung to and fro with the rolling of the vessel, were a pot of beer and three glasses. "'This cursed rolling,' said Blaisois. "'I know it will serve me as it did when we came over.' "'And think,' said Mousqueton, "'that we have nothing to fight seasickness with but barley-bread and hop-beer. Pah!' "'But where is your wicker flask, Monsieur Mousqueton? Have you lost it?' asked Blaisois. "'No,' replied Mousqueton. "'Parry kept it. Those devilish Scotchmen are always thirsty. And you, Grimaud,' he said to his companion, who had just come in after his round with D'Artagnan, "'are you thirsty?' "'As thirsty as a Scotchman,' was Grimaud's laconic reply. And he sat down and began to cast up the accounts of his party, whose money he managed. "'Oh!' Lackadaisy, I'm beginning to feel queer, cried Blaisois. If that's the case, said Mousqueton with a learned air, take some nourishment. Do you call that nourishment? said Blaisois, pointing to the barley bread and pot of beer upon the table. Blaisois, replied Mousqueton, remember that bread is the true nourishment of a Frenchman, who is not always able to get bread? Ask Grimaud. Yes, but beer, asked Blaisois sharply. Is that their true drink? As to that, answered Mousqueton, puzzled how to get out of the difficulty, I must confess that to me beer is as disagreeable as wine is to the English. What? Monsieur Mousqueton, the English, do they dislike wine? they hate it but i have seen them drink it as a punishment for example an english prince died one day because they had him put into a butt of momsey i heard the chevalier d'herblay say so the fool cried blaisois i wish i had been in his place thou canst be said grimaud writing down his figures how asked Blaisois. I can. Explain yourself. Grimaud went on with his sum and cast up the hole. Port, he said, extending his hand in the direction of the first compartment examined by D'Artagnan and himself. Eh? Eh? Ah, those barrels I saw through the door. Port, replied Grimaud, beginning a fresh sum. I have heard, said Blaisois, that port is a very good wine excellent exclaimed mousqueton smacking his lips excellent there is port wine in the cellar of monsieur le baron de bracieux suppose we ask these englishmen to sell us a bottle said the honest blaisois sell cried mousqueton about whom there was a remnant of his ancient marauding character left one may well perceive young man that you are inexperienced why buy what one can take take said blaisois 
covet the goods of your neighbor that is forbidden it seems to me where forbidden asked mousqueton in the commandments of god or of the church i don't know which i only know it says thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods nor yet his wife that's a child's reason monsieur blaisois said mousqueton in his most patronizing manner yes you talk like a child i repeat the word where have you read in the scriptures i ask you that the english are your neighbors where uh, that is true said blaisois at least i can't now recall it a child's reason i repeat it continued mousqueton if you had been ten years engaged in war as grimaud and i have been my dear blaisois you would know the difference there is between the goods of others and the goods of enemies now an englishman is an enemy this port wine belongs to the english therefore it belongs to us and our masters asked blaisois stupefied by this harangue delivered with an air of profound sagacity will they be of your opinion mousqueton smiled disdainfully i suppose you think it necessary that i should disturb the repose of these illustrious lords to say gentlemen your servant mousqueton is thirsty what does monsieur bracieux care think you whether i am thirsty or not tis a very expensive wine said blaisois shaking his head were it liquid gold monsieur blaisois our masters would not deny themselves this wine know that monsieur de bracieux is rich enough to drink a ton of port wine even if obliged to pay a pistole for every drop his manner became more and more lofty every instant then he arose and after finishing off the beer at one draught he advanced majestically to the door of the compartment where the wine was ah locked he exclaimed these devils of english how suspicious they are locked said blaisois ah the deuce it is unlucky for my stomach is getting more and more upset locked repeated mousqueton but blaisois ventured to say i have heard you relate monsieur mousqueton that once on a time at chantilly you fed your master and yourself by taking partridges in a snare carp with a line and bottles with a slip-noose perfectly true but there was an air-hole in the cellar and the wine was in bottles i cannot throw the loop through this partition nor move with a pack-thread a cask of wine which may perhaps weigh two hundred pounds no but you can take out two or three boards of the partition answered blaisois and make a hole in the casket with a gimlet mousqueton opened his great round eyes to the utmost astonished to find in blaisois qualities for which he did not give him credit tis true he said but where can i get a chisel to take the planks out a gimlet to pierce the cask trousers said grimaud still squaring his accounts ah yes said mousqueton grimaud in fact was not only the accountant but the armorer of the party 
and as he was a man full of forethought these trousers carefully rolled up in his valise contained every sort of tool for immediate use mousqueton therefore was soon provided with tools and he began his task in a few minutes he had extracted three boards he tried to pass his body through the aperture but not being like the frog in the fable who thought he was larger than he really was he found he must take out three or four more before he could get through he sighed and set to work again grimaud had now finished his accounts he arose and stood near mousqueton i he said what said mousqueton i can pass that is true said mousqueton glancing at his friend's long and thin body you will pass easily and he knows the full casks said blaisois for he has already been in the hold with monsieur le chevalier d'artagnan let monsieur grimaud go in monsieur mouston i could go in as well as grimaud said mousqueton a little piqued yes but that would take too much time and i am thirsty i am getting more and more seasick go in then grimaud said mousqueton handing him the beer-pot and gimlet rinse the glasses said grimaud then with a friendly gesture toward mousqueton that he might forgive him for finishing an enterprise so brilliantly begun by another he glided like a serpent through the opening and disappeared blaisois was in a great state of excitement he was in ecstasies of all the exploits performed since their arrival in england by the extraordinary men with whom he had the honor to be associated this seemed without question to be the most wonderful you are about to see said mousqueton looking at blaisois with an expression of superiority which the latter did not even think of questioning you are about to see blaisois how we old soldiers drink when we are thirsty my cloak said grimaud from the bottom of the hold what do you want asked blaisois my cloak stop up the aperture with it why asked blaisois simpleton exclaimed mousqueton suppose anyone came into the room ah true cried blaisois with evident admiration but it will be dark in the cellar grimaud always sees dark or light night as well as day answered mousqueton that is lucky said blaisois as for me when i have no candle i can't take two steps without knocking against something that's because you haven't served said mousqueton had you been in the army you would have been able to pick up a needle on the floor of a closed oven but hark i think someone is coming mousqueton made with a low whistling sound the sign of alarm well known to the lackeys in the days of their youth resumed his place at the table and made a sign to blaisois to follow his example blaisois obeyed the door of their cabin was opened two men wrapped in their cloaks appeared Oho, said they not in bed at a quarter past eleven that's against all rules in a quarter of an hour let every one be in bed and snoring these two men then went toward the compartment in which grimaud was secreted opened the door and entered and shut it after them ha oh, cried blaisois he is lost grimaud's a cunning fellow murmured mousqueton they waited for ten minutes during which time no noise was heard that might indicate that grimaud was discovered 
and at the expiration of that anxious interval the two men returned, closed the door after them, and repeating their orders that the servants should go to bed and extinguish their lights, disappeared. "'Shall we obey?' asked Blaisois. "'All this looks suspicious.' "'They said a quarter of an hour. We still have five minutes,' replied Mousqueton. "'Suppose we warn the masters.' "'Let's wait for Grimaud.' "'But perhaps they have killed him.' "'Grimaud would have cried out.' "'You know he is almost dumb.' "'We should have heard the blow, then.' "'But if he doesn't return?' "'Here he is.' At that very moment Grimaud drew back the cloak which hid the aperture and came in with his face livid his eyes staring wide open with terror so that the pupils were contracted almost to nothing with a large circle of white around them he held in his hand a tankard full of a dark substance and approaching the gleam of light shed by the lamp he uttered this single monosyllable oh with such an expression of extreme terror that mousqueton started alarmed and blaisois was near fainting from fright both however cast an inquisitive glance into the tankard it was full of gunpowder. Convinced that the ship was full of powder instead of having a cargo of wine, Grimaud hastened to awake D'Artagnan, who had no sooner beheld him than he perceived that something extraordinary had taken place. Imposing silence, Grimaud put out the little night lamp, then knelt down and poured into the lieutenant's ear a recital melodramatic enough, not to require play of feature to give it pith. This was the gist of his strange story. The first barrel that Grimaud had found on passing into the compartment he struck, it was empty. He passed on to another. It also was empty. But the third which he tried was, from the dull sound it gave, evidently full. At this point Grimaud stopped and was preparing to make a hole with his gimlet when he found a spigot. He therefore placed his tankard under it and turned the spout. Something, whatever it was, the cask contained fell silently into the tankard. Whilst he was thinking that he should first taste the liquor which the tankard contained before taking it to his companions, the door of the cellar opened, and a man with a lantern in his hands and enveloped in a cloak came and stood just before the hogshead, behind which Grimaud, on hearing him come in, instantly crept. This was Groslow. He was accompanied by another man who carried in his hand something long and flexible rolled up, resembling a washing line. His face was hidden under the wide brim of his hat. Grimaud, thinking that they had come as he had to try the port wine, effaced himself behind his cask and consoled himself with the reflection that if he were discovered the crime was not a great one. "'Have you the wick?' asked the one who carried the lantern. "'Here it is,' answered the other. At the voice of this last speaker, Grimaud started and felt a shudder creeping through his very marrow. He rose gently so that his head was just above the round of the barrel and under the large hat he recognized the pale face of Mordaunt. "'How long will this fuse burn?' asked this person. "'About five minutes,' replied the captain. That voice was also known to Grimaud. He looked from one to the other, and after Mordaunt he recognized Groslow. "'Then tell the men to be in readiness. Don't tell them why now.' When the clock strikes a quarter after midnight, collect your men. Get down into the longboat. That is, when I have lighted the match. I will undertake that. 
I wish to be sure of my revenge. Are the oars on the boat? Everything is ready. Tis well. Mordaunt knelt down and fastened one end of the train to the spigot, in order that he might have nothing to do but to set it on fire at the opposite end with the match. He then arose. You hear me? At a quarter past midnight, in fact, in twenty minutes. I understand all perfectly, sir, replied Groslow. But allow me to say that there is great danger in what you undertake. Would it not be better to entrust one of the men to set fire to the train? My dear Groslow, answered Mordaunt, you know the French proverb, nothing one does not do oneself is ever well done. I shall abide by that rule. Grimaud had heard all this, if he had not understood it. But what he saw made good what he lacked in perfect comprehension of the language. He had seen the two mortal enemies of the musketeers, had seen Mordaunt adjust the fuse. He had heard the proverb which Mordaunt had given in French. Then he felt, and felt again the contents of the tankard he held in his hand, and instead of the lively liquor expected by Blaisois and Mousqueton, he found beneath his fingers the grains of some coarse powder. Mordaunt went away with the captain. At the door he stopped to listen. "'Do you hear how they sleep?' he asked. In fact, Porthos could be heard snoring through the partition. "'Tis God who gives them into our hands,' answered Groslow. "'This time the devil himself shall not save them,' rejoined Mordaunt, and they went out together. End of chapter 71 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Chapter 72 of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume 2, 20 Years After by Alexandre Dumas. Translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. End of the Port Wine Mystery Grimaud waited till he heard the bolt grind in the lock, and when he was satisfied that he was alone, he slowly rose from his recumbent posture. Ah, he said, wiping with his sleeve large drops of sweat from his forehead, how lucky it was that Mousqueton was thirsty. He made haste to pass out by the opening, still thinking himself in a dream, but the sight of the gunpowder in the tankard proved to him that his dream was a fatal nightmare. It may be imagined that D'Artagnan listened to these details with increasing interest, before Grimaud had finished, he rose without noise, and putting his mouth to Aramis's ear, and at the same time touching him on the shoulder to prevent a sudden movement. Chevalier, he said, get up, and don't make the least noise. Aramis awoke. D'Artagnan, pressing his hand, repeated his call. Aramis obeyed. Athos is near you, said D'Artagnan. Warn him as I have warned you. Aramis easily aroused Athos, whose sleep was light like that of all persons of a finely organized constitution. But there was more difficulty in arousing Porthos. He was beginning to ask full explanation of that breaking in on his sleep, 
which was very annoying to him, when D'Artagnan, instead of explaining, closed his mouth with his hand. Then Argascon extended his arms, drew to him the heads of his three friends till they almost touched one another. "'Friends,' he said, "'we must leave this craft at once, or we are dead men.' "'Bah,' said Athos, "'are you still afraid?' Do you know who is captain of this vessel? No. Captain Groslow. The shudder of the three musketeers showed to D'Artagnan that his words began to make some impression on them. Groslow, said Aramis. The devil. Who is this Groslow? asked Porthos. I don't remember him. Groslow is the man who broke Perry's head and is now getting ready to break ours. Oh, oh and do you know who is his lieutenant his lieutenant there is none said athos they don't have lieutenants in a felucca manned by a crew of four yes but monsieur groslow is not a captain of the ordinary kind he has a lieutenant and that lieutenant is monsieur mordaunt this time the musketeers did more than shudder they almost cried out those invincible men were subject to a mysterious and fatal influence which that name had over them. The mere sound of it filled them with terror. "'What shall we do?' said Athos. "'We must seize the felucca,' said Aramis. "'And kill him,' said Porthos. "'The felucca is mined,' said D'Artagnan. "'Those casks which I took for casks of port wine are filled with powder.' When Mordaunt finds himself discovered, he will destroy all, friends and foes, and on my word he would be bad company in going either to heaven or to hell. "'You have some plan, then?' asked Athos. "'Yes.' "'What is it?' "'Have you confidence in me?' "'Give your orders,' said the three musketeers. "'Very well. Come this way.' D'Artagnan went toward a very small, low window just large enough to let a man through. He turned it gently on its hinges. There, he said, is our road. The deuce! It is a very cold one, my dear friend, said Aramis. Stay here if you like, but I warn you, twill be rather too warm presently. But we cannot swim to the shore. Uh, the longboat is yonder, lashed to the felucca, we will take possession of it and cut the cable. Come, my friends. A moment's delay, said Athos. Our servants. Here we are, they cried. Meantime, the three friends were standing motionless before the awful sight which D'Artagnan, in raising the shutters, had disclosed to them through the narrow opening of the window. Those who have once beheld such a spectacle know that there is nothing more solemn, more striking than the raging sea rolling with its deafening roar its dark billows beneath the pale light of a wintry moon gracious heaven we are hesitating cried d'artagnan if we hesitate what will the servants do i do not hesitate you know said grimaud sir interposed blaisois i warn you that i can only swim in rivers and i not at all said mousqueton but d'artagnan had now slipped through the window you have decided friend said athos yes the gascon answered athos you who are a perfect being bid spirit triumph over body 
do you aramis order the servants porthos kill everyone who stands in your way and after pressing the hand of athos d'artagnan chose a moment when the ship rolled backward so that he had only to plunge into the water which was already up to his waist athos followed him before the felucca rose again on the waves the cable which tied the boat to the vessel was then seen plainly rising out of the sea d'artagnan swam to it and held it suspending himself by this rope his head alone out of the water in one second athos joined him then they saw as the felucca turned two other heads peeping those of aramis and grimaud i am uneasy about blaisois said athos he can he says only swim in rivers when people can swim at all they can swim anywhere to the boat to the boat but porthos i do not see him porthos is coming he swims like leviathan in fact porthos did not appear for a scene half tragedy and half comedy had been performed by him with mousqueton and blaisois who frightened by the noise of the sea by the whistling of the wind by the sight of that dark water yawning like a gulf beneath them shrank back instead of going forward come come said porthos jump in but monsieur said mousqueton i can't swim let me stay here and me too monsieur said blaisois i assure you i shall be very much in the way in that little boat said mousqueton and i know i shall drown before reaching it continued blaisois come along i shall strangle you both if you don't get out said porthos at last seizing mousqueton by the throat forward blaisois a groan stifled by the grasp of porthos was all the reply of poor blaisois for the giant taking him neck and heels plunged him into the water head foremost pushing him out of the window as if he had been a plank now mousqueton he said i hope you don't mean to desert your master ah oh, sir replied mousqueton his eyes filling with tears why did you re-enter the army we were all so happy in the chateau de pierrefonds and without any other complaint passive and obedient either from true devotion to his master or from the example set by blaisois mousqueton leaped into the sea head foremost a sublime action at all events for mousqueton looked upon himself as dead but porthos was not a man to abandon an old servant and when mousqueton rose above the water blind as a new-born puppy he found he was supported by the large hand of porthos and that he was thus enabled without having occasion even to move to advance toward the cable with the dignity of a very triton in a few minutes porthos had rejoined his companions who were already in the boat but when after they had all got in it came to his turn there was great danger that in putting his huge leg over the edge of the boat he would upset the little vessel athos was the last to enter are you all here he asked ah have you your sword athos cried d'artagnan yes cut the cable then athos drew a sharp poniard from his belt and cut the cord the felucca went on the boat continued stationary rocked only by the swashing of waves come athos said d'artagnan giving his hand to the count you are going to see something curious added the gascon end of chapter seventy two recording by john van stan savannah georgia
Chapter seventy three of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume Two, Twenty Years After, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Fatality. Scarcely had D'Artagnan uttered these words when a ringing and sudden noise was heard resounding through the felucca, which had now become dim in the obscurity of the night. That, you may be sure, said the Gascon, means something. They then at the same instant perceived a large lantern carried on a pole appear on the deck, defining the forms of shadows behind it. Suddenly a terrible cry, a cry of despair, was wafted through space, and as if the shrieks of anguish had driven away the clouds, the veil which hid the moon was cleated away, and the gray sails and dark shrouds of the felucca were plainly visible beneath the silvery light. Shadows ran as if bewildered to and fro on the vessel, and mournful cries accompanied these delirious walkers. In the midst of these screams they saw Mordaunt upon the poop with a torch in hand. The agitated figures, apparently wild with terror, consisted of Groslow, who at the hour fixed by Mordaunt had collected his men and the sailors. Mordaunt, after having listened at the door of the cabin to hear if the musketeers were still asleep, had gone down into the cellar, convinced by their silence that they were all in a deep slumber. Then he had run to the train, impetuous as a man who is excited by revenge and full of confidence, as are those whom God blinds. He had set fire to the wick of nitre. All this while Groslow and his men were assembled on deck. "'Haul up the cable and draw the boat to us,' said Groslow. One of the sailors got down the side of the ship, seized the cable, and drew it, it came without the least resistance. "'The cable is cut!' he cried. "'No boat!' "'How? No boat!' exclaimed Groslow. "'It is impossible!' "'Tis true, however,' answered the sailor. "'There's nothing in the wake of the ship. Besides, here's the end of the cable!' "'What's the matter?' cried Mordaunt, who, coming up out of the hatchway, rushed to the stern, waving his torch. "'Only that our enemies have escaped. "'They have cut the cord and gone off with the boat.' "'Mordaunt bounded with one step to the cabin "'and kicked open the door. "'Empty!' he exclaimed. "'The infernal demons!' "'We must pursue them,' said Groslow. "'They can't be gone far, and we will sink them, passing over them.' "'Yes, but the fire,' ejaculated Mordaunt, I have lighted it. Ten thousand devils, cried Groslow, rushing to the hatchway. Perhaps there is still time to save us. Mordaunt answered only by a terrible laugh, threw his torch into the sea, and plunged in after it. The instant Groslow put his foot upon the hatchway steps, the ship opened like the crater of a volcano. A burst of flame rose toward the skies with an explosion like that of a hundred cannon. The air burned, ignited by flaming embers, and the frightful lightning disappeared. The brands sank, one after another, into the abyss where they were extinguished, and save for a slight vibration in the air after a few minutes had elapsed, one would have thought that nothing had happened. Only the felucca had disappeared from the surface of the sea, and Groslow and his three sailors were consumed. The four friends saw all this. Not a single detail of this fearful scene escaped them. At one moment, bathed as they were in a flood of brilliant light, which illumined the sea for the space of a league, they might each be seen, each by his own peculiar attitude and manner expressing the awe which, even in their hearts of bronze, 
they could not help experiencing. Soon a torrent of vivid sparks fell around them. Then, at last, the volcano was extinguished. Then all was dark and still. The floating bark and heaving ocean. They sat silent and dejected. "'By heaven!' at last said Athos, the first to speak. "'By this time, I think, all must be over.' "'Here, my lords, save me! Help!' cried a voice whose mournful accents, reaching the four friends, seemed to proceed from some phantom of the ocean. All looked around. Athos himself started. "'Tis he! It is his voice!' All still remained silent. The eyes of all were turned in the direction where the vessel had disappeared, endeavoring in vain to penetrate the darkness. After a minute or two they were able to distinguish a man who approached them swimming vigorously. Athos extended his arm toward him, pointing him out to his companions. "'Yes, yes, I see him well enough,' said D'Artagnan. "'He again!' cried Porthos, who was breathing like a blacksmith's bellows. "'Why, he is made of iron!' "'Oh, my God!' muttered Athos. Aramis and D'Artagnan whispered to each other. Mordaunt made several strokes more, and raising his arm in sign of distress above the waves, "'Pity! Pity on me, gentlemen! In heaven's name! My strength is failing! I am dying!' The voice that implored aid was so piteous that it awakened pity in the heart of Athos. "'Poor fellow!' he exclaimed. "'Indeed,' said D'Artagnan, "'monsters have only to complain to gain your sympathy. I believe he's swimming toward us. Does he think we're going to take him in? Row, Porthos, row!' And setting the example, he plowed his oar into the sea. Two strokes took the bark on twenty fathoms further. "'Oh, you will not abandon me! You will not leave me to perish! You will not be pitiless!' cried Mordaunt. "'Ah!' ha said porthos to mordaunt i think we have you now my hero and there are no doors by which you can escape this time but those of hell oh porthos murmured the comte de la fere oh pray for mercy's sake don't fly from me for pity's sake cried the young man whose agony drawn breath at times when his head went under water under the wave exhaled and made the icy waters bubble. D'Artagnan, however, who had consulted with Aramis, spoke to the poor wretch. "'Go away,' he said. "'Your repentance is too recent to inspire confidence. See, the vessel in which you wish to fry us is still smoking, and the situation in which you are is a bed of roses compared to that in which you wish to place us, and in which you have placed Monsieur Groslow and his companions.' "'Sir!' replied mordaunt in a tone of deep despair my penitence is sincere gentlemen i am young scarcely twenty-three years old i was drawn on by a very natural resentment to avenge my mother you would have done what i did mordaunt wanted now only two or three fathoms to reach the boat for the approach of death seemed to give him supernatural strength alas he said i am then to die you are going to kill the son as you killed the mother surely if i am culpable and if i ask for pardon i ought to be forgiven then as if his strength failed him 
He seemed unable to sustain himself above the water, and a wave passed over his head, which drowned his voice. "'Oh, this is torture to me!' cried Athos. Mordaunt reappeared. "'For my part,' said D'Artagnan, "'I say this must come to an end. Murderer as you were of your uncle, executioner as you were of King Charles, incendiary! I recommend you to sink forthwith to the bottom of the sea, and if you come another fathom nearer, I'll stave your wicked head in with this oar.' "'D'Artagnan, D'Artagnan!' cried Athos. "'My son, I entreat you. The wretch is dying, and it is horrible to let a man die without extending a hand to save him. I cannot resist doing so. He must live.' "'Zounds!' replied D'Artagnan. "'Why don't you give yourself up directly, feet and hands bound to that wretch?' ah comte de la fere you wish to perish by his hands i your son as you call me i will not let you twas the first time d'artagnan had ever refused a request from athos aramis calmly drew his sword which he had carried between his teeth as he swam if he lays his hand on the boat's edge i will cut it off regicide that he is and i said porthos wait "'What are you going to do?' asked Aramis. "'Throw myself in the water and strangle him.' "'Oh, gentlemen,' cried Athos, "'be men, be Christians. "'See, death is depicted on his face. "'Ah, do not bring on me the horrors of remorse. "'Grant me this poor wretch's life. "'I will bless you. "'I—' "'I am dying,' cried Mordaunt. "'Come to me, come to me.' D'Artagnan began to be touched. The boat at this moment turned around, and the dying man was by that turn brought nearer Athos. "'Monsieur le Comte de la Fere,' he cried, "'I supplicate you. Pity me. I call on you. Where are you? I can no longer see. I am dying. Help me. Help me!' "'Here I am, sir,' said Athos leaning and stretching out his arm to mordaunt with that air of dignity and nobility of soul habitual to him here i am take my hand and jump into our boat mordaunt made a last effort rose seized the hand thus extended to him and grasped it with the vehemence of despair that's right said athos put your other hand here and he offered him his shoulder as another stay and support so that his head almost touched that of mordaunt and these two mortal enemies were in as close an embrace as if they had been brothers. "'Now, sir,' said the Count, "'you are safe. Calm yourself.' "'Ah! My mother!' cried Mordaunt, with eyes on fire, with a look of hate impossible to paint. "'I can offer only thee one victim, but it shall at any rate be the one thou wouldst thyself have chosen!' And whilst D'Artagnan uttered a cry, Porthos raised the oar, and Aramis sought a place to strike. A frightful shake given to the boat precipitated Athos into the sea, whilst Mordaunt, with a shout of triumph, grasped the neck of his victim, and in order to paralyze his movements, twined arms and legs around the musketeer. For an instant, without an exclamation, without a cry for help, Athos tried to sustain himself on the surface of the waters, but the weight dragged him down. He disappeared by degrees. Soon nothing was to be seen except his long floating hair. 
Then both men disappeared, and the bubbling of the water, which in its turn was soon effaced, alone indicated the spot where these two had sunk. Mute with horror, the three friends had remained open-mouthed, their eyes dilated, their arms extended like statues, and motionless as they were, the beating of their hearts was audible. Porthos was the first who came to himself. He tore his hair. Oh, he cried, Athos, Athos, thou man of noble heart, woe is me, I have let thee perish. At this instant, in the midst of the silver circle illumined by the light of the moon, the same whirlpool which had been made by the sinking men was again obvious, and first were seen, rising above the waves, a wisp of hair, then a pale face with open eyes, yet nevertheless the eyes of death, then a body which, after rising of itself even to the waist above the sea, turned gently on its back according to the caprice of the waves, and floated. In the bosom of this corpse was plunged a poniard, the gold hilts of which shone in the moonbeams. Mordant! Mordant! cried the three friends. "'Tis Mordant! But Athos! exclaimed D'Artagnan. Suddenly the boat leaned on one side beneath a new and unexpected weight, and Grimaud uttered a shout of joy. Everyone turned around and beheld Athos, livid, his eyes dim and his hands trembling, supporting himself on the edge of the boat. Eight vigorous arms lifted him up immediately and laid him in the boat, where directly Athos was warmed and reanimated, reviving with the caresses and cares of his friends, who were intoxicated with joy. "'You are not hurt?' asked D'Artagnan. "'No,' replied Athos. "'And he?' "'Oh, he! Now we may say at last, thank heaven! He is really dead! Look!' And D'Artagnan, obliging Athos to look in the direction he pointed, showed him the body of Mordaunt floating on its back, which sometimes submerged, sometimes rising, seemed still to pursue the four friends with looks of insult and mortal hatred. At last he sank. Athos had followed him with a glance in which the deepest melancholy and pity were expressed. "'Bravo! Athos!' cried Aramis with an emotion very rare in him. "'A capital blow you gave!' cried Porthos. "'I have a son. I wished to live,' said Athos. "'In short,' said D'Artagnan, "'this has been the will of God.' "'It was not I who killed him,' said Athos in a soft, low tone. "'Twas destiny.'" End of chapter 73 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter 74 of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume 2, Twenty Years After, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Hamuscaton had a narrow escape of being eaten. A deep silence reigned for a long time in the boat after the fearful scene described. The moon, which had shone for a short time, disappeared behind the clouds. Every object was again plunged in the obscurity that is so awful in the deserts, and still more so in that liquid desert, the ocean, and nothing was heard save the whistling of the west wind driving along the tops of the crested billows. Porthos was the first to speak. "'I have seen,' he said, 
many dreadful things but nothing that ever agitated me so much as what i have just witnessed nevertheless even in my present state of perturbation i protest that i feel happy i have a hundred pounds weight less upon my chest i breathe more freely in fact porthos breathed so loud as to do credit to the free play of his powerful lungs for my part observed aramis i cannot say the same as you do porthos i am still terrified to such a degree that i scarcely believe my eyes i look around the boat expecting every moment to see that poor wretch holding between his hands the poniard plunged into his heart oh i feel easy replied porthos the poniard was pointed at the sixth rib and buried up to the hilt in his body i do not reproach you athos for what you have done on the contrary when one aims a blow that is the regulation way to strike so now i breathe again i am happy don't be in haste to celebrate a victory porthos interposed d'artagnan never have we incurred a greater danger than we are now encountering men may subdue men they cannot overcome the elements we are now on the sea at night without any pilot in a frail bark should a blast of wind upset the boat we are lost mousqueton heaved a deep sigh you are ungrateful d'artagnan said athos yes ungrateful to providence to whom we owe our safety in the most miraculous manner let us sail before the wind and unless it changes we shall be drifted either toward calais or boulogne should our bark be upset we are five of us good swimmers able enough to turn it over again or if not to hold on by it now we are on the very road which all the vessels between dover and calais take tis impossible but that we should meet with a fisherman who will pick us up but should we not find any fisherman and should we find the wind shift to the north that said athos would be quite another thing and we should never more see land until we were upon the other side of the atlantic which implies that we may die of hunger said aramis tis more than possible answered the comte de la fere mousqueton sighed again more deeply than before what is the matter what ails you asked porthos i am cold sir said mousqueton impossible your body is covered with a coating of fat which preserves it from the cold air ah sir tis this very coating of fat that makes me shiver how is that mousqueton alas your honor in the library of the chateau of bracieux there are a lot of books of travels what then amongst them the voyages of jean moquet in the time of henry the fourth well in these books your honor tis told how hungry voyagers drifting out to sea have a bad habit of eating each other and beginning with the fattest among them cried d'artagnan unable in spite of the gravity of the occasion to help laughing yes sir answered mousqueton but permit me to say i see nothing laughable in it however 
he added, turning to Porthos. "'I should not regret dying, sir, were I sure that by doing so I might still be useful to you.' "'Mouston,' replied Porthos, much affected, "'should we ever see my castle of Pierrefond again, you shall have as your own, and for your descendants, the vineyard that surrounds the farm.' and you should call it devotion added aramis the vineyard of self-sacrifice to transmit to latest ages the recollection of your devotion to your master chevalier said d'artagnan laughing you could eat a piece of mouston couldn't you especially after two or three days of fasting oh no replied aramis i should much prefer blaisois we haven't known him so long. One may readily conceive that during these jokes, which were intended chiefly to divert Athos from the scene which had just taken place, the servants, with the exception of Grimaud, were not silent. Suddenly Mousqueton uttered a cry of delight, taking from beneath one of the benches a bottle of wine, and on looking more closely in the same place, he discovered a dozen similar bottles, bread, and a monster junk of salted beef. "'Oh, sir!' he cried, passing the bottle to Porthos. "'We are saved! The bark is supplied with provisions!' This intelligence restored every one save Athos to gaiety. "'Sounds!' exclaimed Porthos. "'Tis astonishing how empty violent agitation makes the stomach!' And he drank off half a bottle at a draught, and bit great mouthfuls of the bread and meat. "'Now?' said athos sleep or try to sleep my friends and i will watch in a few moments notwithstanding their wet clothes the icy blasts that blew and the previous scene of terror these hardy adventurers with their iron frames inured to every hardship threw themselves down intending to profit by the advice of athos who sat at the helm pensively wakeful guiding the little bark the way it was to go his eyes fixed on the heavens as if he sought to verify not only the road to France, but the benign aspect of protecting providence. After some hours of repose, the sleepers were aroused by Athos. Dawn was shedding its pallid, placid glimmer on the purple ocean, when at the distance of a musket-shot from them was seen a dark grey mass, above which gleamed a triangular sail, then masters and servants joined in a fervent cry to the crew of that vessel to hear them and to save a bark all cried together it was in fact a small craft from dunkirk bound for boulogne a quarter of an hour afterward the rowboat of this craft took them all aboard grimaud tendered twenty guineas to the captain and at nine o'clock in the morning having a fair wind our frenchmen set foot on their native land egad how strong one feels here said porthos almost burying his large feet in the sands sounds i could defy a nation be quiet porthos said d'artagnan we are observed we are admired in faith answered porthos these people who are looking at us are only merchants said athos and are looking more at the cargo than at us i shall not trust to that said the lieutenant and i shall make for the dunes sandy hills about dunkirk from which it derives its name as soon as possible the party followed him and soon disappeared with him behind the hillocks of sand unobserved here 
After a short conference, they proposed to separate. "'And why separate?' asked Athos. "'Because,' answered the Gascon, "'we were sent, Porthos and I, by Cardinal Mazarin to fight for Cromwell. Instead of fighting for Cromwell, we have served Charles I. Not the same thing by any means.' In returning with the Comte de la Fere and Monsieur d'Herblay, our crime would be confirmed. We have circumvented Cromwell, Mordaunt, and the sea, but we shall find a certain difficulty in circumventing Mazarin. "'You forget,' replied Athos, "'that we consider ourselves your prisoners, and not free from the engagement we entered into.' "'Truly, Athos,' interrupted D'Artagnan, I am vexed that such a man as you are should talk nonsense which schoolboys would be ashamed of. Chevalier, he continued addressing Aramis, who, leaning proudly on his sword, seemed to agree with his companion. Chevalier, Porthos and I run no risk. Besides, should any ill luck happen to two of us, will it not be much better that the other two should be spared to assist those who may be apprehended? Besides, who knows whether divided we may not obtain a pardon, you from the queen, we from Mazarin, which, were we all four together, would never be granted. Come, Athos and Aramis, go to the right. Porthos, come with me to the left. These gentlemen should file off into Normandy, whilst we, by the nearest road, reach Paris. He then gave his friends minute directions as to their route. Ah, my dear friend, exclaimed Athos, how I should admire the resources of your mind, did I not stop to adore those of your heart. And he gave him his hand. "'Isn't this fox a genius, Athos?' asked the Gascon. "'No. He knows how to crunch fowls, to dodge the huntsmen, and to find his way home by day or by night. That's all. Well, is all said?' "'All?' "'Then let's count our money and divide it. Ah, hurrah! There's the sun, a merry morning to you, sunshine. Tis a long time since I saw thee. Come, come, D'Artagnan, said Athos. Do not affect to be strong-minded. There are tears in your eyes. Let us be open with each other, and sincere. What? cried the Gascon. Do you think, Athos, we can take leave, calmly of two friends at a time not free from danger to you and Aramis? No, answered Athos. Embrace me, my son. Zounds, said Porthos, sobbing. I believe I'm crying, but how foolish all this is. Then they embraced. At that moment their fraternal bond of union was closer than ever, and when they parted each to take the route agreed on, they turned back to utter affectionate expressions, which the echoes of the dunes repeated. At last they lost sight of each other. Scarbleu, d'Artagnan, said Porthos, I must out with it at once, for I can't keep to myself anything I have against you. I haven't been able to recognize you in this matter. Why not? said d'Artagnan with his wise smile. Because if, as you say, Athos and Aramis are in real danger, this is not the time to abandon them. For my part, I confess to you that I was all ready to follow them, and am still ready to rejoin them in spite of all the Mazarines in the world. You would be right, Porthos, but for one thing, which may change the current of your ideas, and that is, that it is not those gentlemen who are in the greatest danger. 
it is ourselves it is not to abandon them that we have separated but to avoid compromising them really said porthos opening his eyes in astonishment yes no doubt if they are arrested they will only be put in the bastille if we are arrested it is a matter of the place de greve oh oh said porthos there is quite a gap between that fate and the baronial coronet you promised me d'artagnan bah perhaps not so great as you think porthos you know the proverb all roads lead to rome but how is it that we are incurring greater risks than athos and aramis asked porthos because they have but fulfilled the mission confided to them by queen henrietta and we have betrayed that confided to us by mazarin because going hence as emissaries to cromwell we became partisans of king charles because instead of helping cut off the royal head condemned by those fellows called mazarin cromwell joyce bridge fairfax etc we very nearly succeeded in saving it upon my word that is true said porthos but how can you suppose my dear friend that in the midst of his great preoccupations general cromwell has had time to think cromwell thinks of everything cromwell has time for everything and believe me dear friend we ought not to lose our time it is precious we shall not be safe till we have seen mazarin and then the devil said porthos what can we say to mazarin leave that to me i have a plan he laughs best who laughs last cromwell is mighty mazarin is tricky but i would rather have to do with them than with the late monsieur mordaunt ah said porthos it is very pleasant to be able to say the late monsieur mordaunt my faith yes said d'artagnan but we must be going the two immediately started across country toward the road to paris followed by mousqueton who after being too cold all night at the end of a quarter of an hour found himself too warm end of chapter seventy four recording by john van stan savannah georgia Chapter seventy five of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume two, twenty years after, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Return During the six weeks that Athos and Aramis had been absent from France, the Parisians, finding themselves one morning without either queen or king, were greatly annoyed at being thus deserted, and the absence of Mazarin a thing so long desired did not compensate for that of the two august fugitives the first feeling that pervaded paris on hearing of the flight to saint germain was that sort of a fright which seizes children when they awake in the night and find themselves alone a deputation was therefore sent to the queen to entreat her to return to paris but she not only declined to receive the deputies but sent an intimation by chancellor segur implying that if the parliament did not humble itself before her majesty by negating all the questions that had been the cause of the quarrel paris would be besieged the very next day this threatening answer unluckily for the court produced quite a different effect to that which was intended 
it wounded the pride of the parliament which supported by the citizens replied by declaring that cardinal mazarin was the cause of all the discontent denounced him as the enemy both of the king and the state and ordered him to retire from the court that same day and from france within a week afterward enjoining in case of disobedience on his part all the subjects of the king to pursue and take him mazarin being thus placed beyond the pale of the protection of the law preparations on both sides were commenced by the queen to attack paris by the citizens to defend it the latter were occupied in breaking up the pavement and stretching chains across the streets when headed by the coadjutor appeared the prince de conti the brother of the prince de conde and the duke de longueville his brother-in-law this unexpected band of auxiliaries arrived in paris on the tenth of january and the prince of conti was named but not until after a stormy discussion generalissimo of the army of the king out of paris as for the duc de beaufort he arrived from vendome according to the annals of the day bringing with him his high bearing and his long and beautiful hair qualifications which gained him the sovereignty of the market-places the parisian army had organized with the promptness characteristic of the bourgeois whenever they are moved by any sentiment whatever to disguise themselves as soldiers on the nineteenth the impromptu army had attempted a sortie more to assure itself and others of its actual existence than with any more serious intention they carried a banner on which could be read this strange device we are seeking our king the next following days were occupied in trivial movements which resulted only in the carrying off of a few herds of cattle and the burning of two or three houses that was still the situation of affairs up to the early days of february on the first day of that month our four companions had landed at boulogne and in two parties had set out for paris toward the end of the fourth day of the journey athos and aramis reached nanterre which place they cautiously passed by on the outskirts fearing that they might encounter some troop from the queen's army it was against his will that athos took these precautions but aramis had very judiciously reminded him that they had no right to be imprudent that they had been charged by king charles with a supreme and sacred mission which received at the foot of the scaffold could be accomplished only at the feet of queen henrietta upon that athos yielded on reaching the capital athos and aramis found it in arms the sentinel at the gate refused even to let them pass and called his sergeant the sergeant with an air of importance which such people assume when they are clad with military dignity said who are you gentlemen two gentlemen and where do you come from from london and what are you going to do in paris we are going with a mission to her majesty the queen of england ah everyone seems to be going to see the queen of england we have already at the station three gentlemen whose passports are under examination who are on their way to her majesty where are your passports we have none we left england ignorant of the state of politics here having left paris before the departure of the king ah said the sergeant with a cunning smile you are mazarinists who are sent as spies my dear friend here athos spoke rest assured if we were mazarinists we should come well prepared with every sort of passport in your situation distrust those who are well provided with every formality enter the guard-room said the sergeant we will lay your case before the commandant of the post 
The guard-room was filled with citizens and common people, some playing, some drinking, some talking. In a corner, almost hidden from view, were three gentlemen who had preceded Athos and Aramis, and an officer was examining their passports. The first impulse of these three, and of those who last entered, was to cast an inquiring glance at each other. The first arrivals wore long cloaks, in whose drapery they were carefully enveloped. One of them, shorter than the rest, remained pertinaciously in the background. When the sergeant, on entering the room, announced that, in all probability, he was bringing in two Mazarinists, it appeared to be the unanimous opinion of the officers on guard that they ought not to pass. "'Be it so,' said Athos, "'yet it is probable, on the contrary, that we shall enter, because we seem to have to do with sensible people. There seems to be only one thing to do, which is, to send our names to Her Majesty the Queen of England, and if she engages to answer for us, I presume we shall be allowed to enter.' On hearing these words, the shortest of the other three men seemed more attentive than ever to what was going on, wrapping his cloak around him more carefully than before. "'Merciful goodness!' whispered Aramis to Athos. "'Did you see?' "'What?' asked Athos. "'The face of the shortest of those three gentlemen.' "'No.' "'He looked to me. But tis impossible.' At this instant the sergeant, who had been for his orders, returned, and, pointing to the three gentlemen in cloaks, said, "'The passports are in order. Let these three gentlemen pass.' The three gentlemen bowed and hastened to take advantage of this permission. Aramis looked after them, and as the last of them passed close to him, he pressed the hand of Athos. "'What is the matter with you, my friend?' asked the latter. "'I have. Doubtless I am dreaming. Tell me, sir.' he said to the sergeant, "'Do you know those three gentlemen who are just gone out?' "'Only by their passports. They are three frondists, who are gone to rejoin the Duc de Longueville.' "'Tis strange,' said Aramis, almost involuntarily. "'I fancied that I recognized Mazarin himself.' The sergeant burst into a fit of laughter. "'He!' <laughs> he cried. "'He! Venture himself amongst us?' To be hung, not so foolish as all that. Ah, muttered Athos, I may be mistaken. I haven't the unerring eye of D'Artagnan. Who is speaking of Monsieur D'Artagnan? asked an officer who appeared at that moment upon the threshold of the room. What? cried Aramis. And Athos, what? Planchet. Planchet, added Grimaud. Planchet, with a gorget indeed. "'Ah, gentlemen!' cried Planchet. "'So you are back again in Paris. "'Oh, how happy you make us! "'No doubt you come to join the princes.' "'As thou seest, Planchet,' said Aramis, "'whilst Athos smiled on seeing what important rank "'was held in the city militia "'by the former comrade of Mousqueton, Bazin, and Grimaud. "'And Monsieur d'Artagnan, of whom you spoke just now, "'Monsieur d'Herblay, may I ask if you have any news of him?' We parted from him four days ago, and we have reason to believe that he has reached Paris before us. No, sir, I am sure he hasn't yet arrived, but then he may have stopped at Saint-Germain. I don't think so. We appointed to meet at La Chevrette. I was there this very day. And had the pretty Madeleine no news? asked Aramis, smiling. No, sir, and it must be admitted that she seemed very anxious.
in fact said aramis there is no time lost and we made our journey quickly permit me then my dear athos without inquiring further about our friend to pay my respects to monsieur planchet ah monsieur le chevalier said planchet bowing lieutenant asked aramis lieutenant with a promise of becoming captain tis capital and pray how did you acquire all these honors in the first place gentlemen you know that i was the means of monsieur de rochefort's escape well i was very near being hung by mazarin and that made me more popular than ever so owing to your popularity no thanks to something better you know gentlemen that i served the piedmont regiment and had the honor of being a sergeant yes well one day when no one could drill a mob of citizens who began to march some with the right foot others with the left i succeeded i did in making them all begin with the same foot and i was made lieutenant on the spot so i presume said athos that you have a large number of the nobles with you certainly there are the prince de Ganty, the duc de longueville the duc de beaufort the duc de bouillon the marechal de la motte the marquis de sevigne and i don't know who for my part and the vicomte raoul de bragelonne inquired athos in a tremulous voice d'artagnan told me that he had recommended him to your care in parting yes count nor have i lost sight of him for a single instant since then said athos in a tone of delight he is well no accident has happened to him none sir and he lives still at the hotel of the great charlemagne and passes his time sometimes with the queen of england sometimes with madame de chevreuse he and the count de guiche are like each other's shadows thanks planchet thanks cried athos extending his hand to the lieutenant oh sir planchet only touched the tips of the count's fingers well what are you doing count to a former lackey my friend said athos he has given me news of raoul and now gentlemen said planchet who had not heard what they were saying what do you intend to do re-enter paris if you will let us my good planchet let you sir now as ever i am nothing but your servant then turning to his men allow these gentlemen to pass he said they are friends of the duc de beaufort long live the duc de beaufort cried the sentinels the sergeant drew near to planchet what without passports he murmured without passports said planchet take notice captain he continued giving planchet his expected title take notice that one of the three men who just now went out from here told me privately to distrust these gentlemen and i said planchet with dignity i know them and i answer for them as he said this he pressed grimaud's hand who seemed honored by the distinction farewell till we meet again said aramis as they took leave of planchet if anything happens to us we shall blame you for it sir said planchet i am in all things at your service 
"'That fellow is no fool,' said Aramis as he got on his horse. "'How should he be?' replied Athos, whilst mounting also. "'Seeing he was you so long to brush your hats.'" End of chapter 75 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter 76 of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume 2, Twenty Years After, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Ambassadors The two friends rode rapidly down the declivity of the Faubourg, but on arriving at the bottom were surprised to find that the streets of Paris had become rivers, and the open places lakes. After the great rains which fell in January, the Seine had overflowed its banks, and the river inundated half the capital. The two gentlemen were obliged, therefore, to get off their horses and take a boat, and in that strange manner they approached the Louvre. Night had closed in, and Paris, seen thus by the light of lanterns flickering on the pools of water, crowded with ferry-boats of every kind, including those that glittered with the armed patrols, with the watchword, passing from post to post, Paris presented such an aspect as to strongly seize the senses of Aramis, a man most susceptible to warlike impressions. They reached the queen's apartments, but were compelled to stop in the antechamber, since her majesty was at that moment giving audience to gentlemen bringing her news from England. "'We, too,' said Athos to the footman who had given him that answer, "'not only bring news from England, but have just come from there.' "'What, then, are your names, gentlemen?' "'The Comte de la Fere and the Chevalier d'Herblay,' said Aramis. "'Ah, in that case, gentlemen,' said the footman, on hearing the names which the Queen had so often pronounced with hope, "'in that case it is another thing, and I think Her Majesty will pardon me for not keeping you here a moment. Please follow me.' And he went on before, followed by Athos and Aramis. On arriving at the door of the room where the Queen was receiving, he made a sign for them to wait, and, opening the door, "'Madame,' he said, I hope your majesty will forgive me for disobeying your orders when you learn that the gentlemen I have come to announce are the Comte de la Fere and the Chevalier d'Herblay. On hearing those two names, the queen uttered a cry of joy, which the two gentlemen heard. Poor queen! Oh, let them come in! Let them come in! cried the young princess, bounding to the door. The poor child was constant in her attendance on her mother, and sought by her filial attentions to make her forget the absence of her two sons and her other daughter. "'Come in, gentlemen,' repeated the princess, opening the door herself. The queen was seated on a fauteuil, and before her were standing two or three gentlemen, and among them the Duc de Chatillon, the brother of the nobleman killed eight or nine years previously in a duel on account of Madame de Longueville on the Place Royale. All these gentlemen had been noticed by Athos and Aramis in the guardhouse, and when the two friends were announced, they started and exchanged some words in a low tone. "'Well, sirs,' cried the queen on perceiving the two friends, "'you have come, faithful friends. 
but the royal couriers have been more expeditious than you and here are monsieur de flamarin and monsieur de chatillon who bring me from her majesty the queen anne of austria the very latest intelligence aramis and athos were astounded by the calmness even the gaiety of the queen's manner go on with your recital sirs said the queen turning to the duc de chatillon you said that his majesty king charles my august consort had been condemned to death by a majority of his subjects yes madame chatillon stammered out athos and aramis were more and more astonished and that being conducted to the scaffold resumed the queen oh my lord oh my king and that being led to the scaffold he had been saved by an indignant people just so madame replied chatillon in so low a voice that though the two friends were listening eagerly they could hardly hear this affirmation the queen clasped her hands in enthusiastic gratitude whilst her daughter threw her arms around her mother's neck and kissed her her own eyes streaming with tears now madame nothing remains to me except to proffer my respectful homage said chatillon who felt confused and ashamed beneath the stern gaze of athos one moment yes answered the queen one moment i beg for here are the chevalier d'herblay and the comte de la fere just arrived from london and they can give you as eye-witnesses such details as you can convey to the queen my royal sister speak gentlemen speak i am listening conceal nothing gloss over nothing since his majesty still lives since the honor of the throne is safe everything else is a matter of indifference to me athos turned pale and laid his hand on his heart well exclaimed the queen who remarked this movement and his paleness speak sir i beg you to do so i beg you to excuse me madame i wish to add nothing to the recital of these gentlemen until they perceive themselves that they are perhaps been mistaken mistaken cried the queen almost suffocated by emotion mistaken what has happened then sir interposed monsieur de flamarin to athos if we are mistaken the error has originated with the queen i do not suppose you will have the presumption to set it to rights that would be to accuse her majesty queen anne of falsehood with the queen sir replied athos in his calm vibrating voice yes murmured flamarin lowering his eyes athos sighed deeply or rather sir said aramis with his peculiar irritating politeness the error of the person who was with you when we met you in the guard-room for if the comte de la fere and i are not mistaken we saw you in the company of a third gentleman chatillon and flamarin started explain yourself count cried the queen whose anxiety grew greater every moment on your brow i read despair your lips falter ere you announce some terrible tidings your hands tremble oh my god my god what has happened lord ejaculated the young princess falling on her knees have mercy on us sir said chatillon 
if you bring bad tidings it will be cruel in you to announce them to the queen aramis went so close to chatillon as almost to touch him sir said he with his compressed lips and flashing eyes you have not the presumption to instruct the comte de la fere and myself what we ought to say here during this brief altercation athos with his hand on his heart his head bent low approached the queen and in a voice of deepest sorrow said madame princess who by nature are above other men receive from heaven courage to support greater misfortunes than those of lower rank for their hearts are elevated as their fortunes we ought not therefore i think to act toward a queen so illustrious as your majesty as we should act toward a woman of our lowlier condition queen destined as you are to endure every sorrow on this earth hear the result of our unhappy mission athos kneeling before the queen trembling and very cold drew from his bosom enclosed in the same case the order set in diamonds which the queen had given to lord de winter and the wedding ring which charles i before his death had placed in the hands of aramis since the moment he had first received these two mementos athos had never parted with them he opened the case and offered them to the queen with deep and silent anguish the queen stretched out her hand seized the ring pressed it convulsively to her lips and without being able to breathe a sigh gave vent to a sob she extended her arms became deadly pale and fell senseless in the arms of her attendants and her daughter athos kissed the hem of the robe of the widowed queen and rising with a dignity that made a deep impression on those around i the comte de la fere a gentleman who has never deceived any human being swear before god and before this unhappy queen that all that was possible to save the king of england was done whilst we were on english ground now chevalier he added turning to aramis let us go our duty is fulfilled not yet said aramis we still have a word to say to these gentlemen and turning to chatillon sir be so good as to not go away without giving me an opportunity to tell you something i cannot say before the queen chatillon bowed in token of assent and they all went out stopping at the window of a gallery on the second floor sir said aramis you allowed yourself just now to treat us in a most extraordinary manner that would not be endurable in any case and is still less so on the part of those who came to bring the queen the message of a liar sir cried de chatillon what have you done with monsieur de broy has he by any possibility gone to change his face which was too like that of monsieur de mazarin there is an abundance of italian masks at the palais royal from harlequin even to pantaloon chevalier chevalier said athos leave me alone said aramis impatiently you know well that i don't like to leave things half finished conclude then sir answered de chatillon with as much hauteur as aramis gentlemen resumed aramis any one but the comte de la fere and myself would have arrested you for we have friends in paris but we are contented with another course come and converse with us for just five minutes sword in hand upon this deserted terrace one moment gentlemen cried flamarin 
I know well that the proposition is tempting, but at present it is impossible to accept it. And why not? said Aramis in his tone of raillery. Is it Mazarin's proximity that makes you so prudent? Oh, you hear that, Flamarin? said Chatillon. Not to reply would be a blot on my name and my honor. That is my opinion, said Aramis. You will not reply, however, and these gentlemen, I am sure, will presently be of my opinion. Aramis shook his head with a motion of indescribable insolence. Chatillon saw the motion and put his hand to his sword. Willingly, replied de Chatillon. Duke, said Flamarin, you forget that tomorrow you are to command an expedition of the greatest importance, projected by the prince, assented to by the queen, until tomorrow evening you are not at your own disposal. Let it be then the day after tomorrow, said Aramis. Tomorrow, rather, said de Chatillon if you will take the trouble of coming so far as the gates of Charenton. How can you doubt it, sir? For the pleasure of a meeting with you, I would go to the end of the world. Very well. Tomorrow, sir. I shall rely on it. Are you going to rejoin your cardinal? Swear first on your honor not to inform him of our return. Conditions? Why not? Because it is for victors to make conditions and you are not yet victors gentlemen then let us draw on the spot it is all one to us to us who do not command tomorrow's expedition chatillon and flamarens looked at each other there was such irony in the words and in the bearing of aramis that the duke had great difficulty in bridling his anger but at a word from flamarens he restrained himself and contented himself with saying you promise sir that's agreed that i shall find you to-morrow at charenton oh don't be afraid sir replied aramis and the two gentlemen shortly afterward left the louvre for what reason is all this fume and fury asked athos what have they done to you they did you not see what they did no they laughed when we swore that we had done our duty in england now if they believed us they laughed in order to insult us if they did not believe it they insulted us all the more however i am glad not to fight them until tomorrow i hope we shall have something better to do tonight than to draw the sword what have we to do egad to take mazarin athos curled his lip with disdain these undertakings do not suit me as you know aramis why because it is taking people unawares really athos you would make a singular general you would fight only by broad daylight warn your foe before an attack and never attempt anything by night lest you should be accused of taking advantage of the darkness athos smiled you know one cannot change his nature he said besides do you know what is our situation and whether Mazarin's arrest wouldn't be rather an encumbrance than an advantage? Say at once you disapprove of my proposal. I think you ought to do nothing, since you exacted a promise from these gentlemen not to let Mazarin know that we were in France. I have entered into no engagement, and consider myself quite free. Come, come. Where? 
either to seek the Duc de Beaufort or the Duc de Bouillon, and to tell them about this. Yes, but on one condition, that we begin by the coadjutor. He is a priest, learned in the cases of conscience, and we will tell him ours. It was then agreed that they were to go first to Monsieur de Bouillon, as his house came first, but first of all Athos begged that he might go to the Hotel de Grand Charlemagne to see Raoul. They re-entered the boat which had brought them to the Louvre, and thence proceeded to the Halle, and taking up Grimaud and Blaisois, they went on foot to the Rue Guénégaud. But Raoul was not at the Hotel de Grand Charlemagne. He had received a message from the prince, to whom he had hastened with Olivain the instant he had received it. End of chapter 76 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter 77 of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume 2, Twenty Years After by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Three Lieutenants of the Generalissimo The night was dark, but still the town resounded with those noises that disclose a city in a state of siege. Athos and Aramis did not proceed a hundred steps without being stopped by sentinels placed before the barricades, who demanded the watchword and on their saying that they were going to Monsieur de Bouillon on a mission of importance a guide was given them, under pretext of conducting them, but in fact as a spy over their movements. On arriving at the Hotel de Bouillon, they came across a little troop of three cavaliers who seemed to know every possible password, for they walked without either guide or escort, and on arriving at the barricades had nothing to do but to speak to those who guarded them, who instantly let them pass with evident deference, due probably to their high birth. On seeing them, Athos and Aramis stood still. "'Oh!' cried Aramis. "'Do you see, Count?' "'Yes,' said Athos. "'Who do these three cavaliers appear to you to be?' "'What do you think, Aramis?' "'Why, they are our men!' "'You are not mistaken. I recognize Monsieur de Flamarin.' "'And I, Monsieur de Chatillon.' As to the cavalier in the brown cloak, it is the cardinal. In person. How the devil do they venture so near the Hotel de Bouillon? Athos smiled but did not reply. Five minutes afterward they knocked at the prince's door. This door was guarded by a sentinel, and there was also a guard placed in the courtyard, ready to obey the orders of the prince de Conti's lieutenant. Monsieur de Bouillon had the gout but notwithstanding his illness, which had prevented his mounting on horseback for the last month, that is, since Paris had been besieged, he was ready to receive the Comte de la Fere and the Chevalier d'Herblay. He was in bed, but surrounded with all the paraphernalia of war. Everywhere were swords, pistols, cuirasses, and arquebuses, and it was plain that as soon as his gout was better, Monsieur de Bouillon would give a pretty tangle to the enemies of the Parliament to unravel. Meanwhile, to his great regret, as he said, he was obliged to keep his bed. "'Ah, gentlemen,' he cried as the two friends entered, "'you are very happy. You can ride, you can go and come and fight for the cause of the people, but I, as you see, am nailed to my bed. Ah, this demon gout, this demon gout!' "'My lord,' said Athos, "'we are just arrived from England.' and our first concern is to inquire after your health. Thanks, gentlemen, thanks. As you see, my health is but indifferent. But you come from England, 
and King Charles is well, as I have just heard. He is dead, my lord, said Aramis. Pooh, said the duke, too much astonished to believe it true. Dead on the scaffold, condemned by Parliament. Impossible. And executed in our presence. What, then, has Monsieur de Flamarin been telling me? Monsieur de Flamarin? Yes, he has just got out. Athos smiled. With two companions, he said. With two companions, yes, replied the duke. Then he added with a certain uneasiness, Did you meet them? Why, yes, I think so. In the street, said Athos, and he looked smilingly at Aramis, who looked at him with an expression of surprise. The devil take this gout, cried Monsieur de Bouillon, evidently ill at ease. My lord, said Athos, we admire your devotion to the cause you have espoused, in remaining at the head of the army while so ill, in so much pain. One must, replied Monsieur de Bouillon, sacrifice one's comfort to the public good. But I confess to you, I am now almost exhausted. My spirit is willing, my head is clear, but this demon, the gout, all crows me. I confess, if the court would do justice to my claims and give the head of my house the title of prince, and if my brother de Turenne were reinstated in his command, I would return to my estates and leave the court and parliament to settle things between themselves as they might. You are perfectly right, my lord. You think so? At this very moment the court is making overtures to me. Hitherto I have repulsed them. But since such men as you assure me that I am wrong in doing so, I've a good mind to follow your advice and to accept a proposition made to me by the Duc de Chatillon just now. Accept it, my lord. Accept it, said Aramis. Faith, yes. I am even sorry that this evening I am almost repulsed. But there will be a conference tomorrow, and we shall see. The two friends saluted the duke. Go, gentlemen, he said. You must be much fatigued after your voyage. Poor King Charles. But, after all, he was somewhat to blame in all that business, and we may console ourselves with the reflection that France has no cause of reproach in the matter, and did all she could to serve him. Oh, as to that, said Aramis, we are witnesses, Mazarin especially. Yes, do you know I am very glad to hear you give that testimony. The cardinal has some good in him, and if he were not a foreigner, well, he would be more justly estimated. Oh, the devil take this gout! Athos and Aramis took their leave, but even in the antechamber they could still hear the duke's cries. He was evidently suffering the tortures of the damned. When they reached the street, Aramis said, "'Well, Athos, what do you think?' "'Of whom?' Pardieu, of Monsieur de Bouillon.' "'My friend, I think that he is much troubled with gout.' "'You noticed that I didn't breathe a word as to the purpose of our visit.' "'You did well. You would have caused him an access of his disease. Let us go to Monsieur de Beaufort.' The two friends went to the Hotel de Vendôme. It was ten o'clock when they arrived. 
the hotel de vendome was not less guarded than the hotel de bouillon and presented as warlike an appearance there were sentinels a guard in the court stacks of arms and horses saddled two horsemen going out as athos and aramis entered were obliged to give place to them aha gentlemen said aramis decidedly it is a night for meetings we shall be very unfortunate if after meeting so often this evening we should not succeed in meeting to-morrow oh as to that sir replied chatillon for it was he who with flamarins was leaving the duc de beaufort you may be assured for if we meet by night without seeking each other much more shall we meet by day when wishing it i hope that is true said aramis as for me i am sure of it said the duke de flamarins and de chatillon continued on their way and athos and aramis dismounted hardly had they given the bridles of their horses to their lackeys and rid themselves of their cloaks when a man approached them and after looking at them for an instant by the doubtful light of the lantern hung in the centre of the courtyard he uttered an exclamation of joy and ran to embrace them comte de la fere the man cried out chevalier d'herblay how does it happen that you are in paris rochefort cried the two friends yes we arrived four or five days ago from vendemois as you know and we are going to give mazarin something to do you are still with us i presume more than ever and the duke furious against the cardinal you know his success our dear duke he is really king of paris he can't go out without being mobbed by his admirers ah so much the better can we have the honor of seeing his highness i shall be proud to present you and rochefort walked on every door was open to him monsieur de beaufort was at supper but he rose quickly on hearing the two friends announced ah he cried by jove you're welcome sirs you are coming to sup with me are you not boisgoli tell noirmont that i have two guests you know noirmont do you not the successor of father marteau who makes the excellent pies you know of boisgoli let him send one of his best but not such a one as he made for la Romée. thank god we don't want either rope ladders or gag pairs now my lord said athos do not let us disturb you we came merely to inquire after your health and to take your orders as to my health since it has stood five years of prison with monsieur de chevigny to boot tis excellent as to my orders since everyone gives his own commands in our party i shall end if this goes on by giving none at all in short my lord said athos glancing at aramis your highness is discontented with your party discontented sir say my highness is furious to such a degree i assure you though i would not say so to others that if the queen acknowledging the injury she has done me would recall my mother and give me the reversion of the admiralty which belonged to my father and was promised me at his death well it would not be long before i should be training dogs to say that there were greater traitors in france than the cardinal mazarin at this athos and aramis could not help exchanging not only another look but a smile and had they not known it for a fact this would have told them that the chatillon and de flamarins had been there my lord said athos we are satisfied we came here only to express our loyalty and to say that we are at your lordship's service and his most faithful servants 
my most faithful friends gentlemen my most faithful friends you have proved it and if ever i am reconciled with the court i shall prove to you i hope that i remain your friend as well as that of what the devil are their names d'artagnan and porthos d'artagnan and porthos ah yes you understand then comte de la fere you understand chevalier d'herblay that i am altogether and always at your service athos and aramis bowed and went out my dear athos cried aramis i think you consented to accompany me only to give me a lesson god forgive me wait a little aramis it will be time for you to perceive my motive when we have paid our visit to the coadjutor let us then go to the archiepiscopal palace said aramis they directed their horses to the city on arriving at the cradle from which paris sprang they found it inundated with water and it was again necessary to take a boat the palace rose from the bosom of the water and to see the number of boats around it one would have fancied oneself not in paris but in venice some of these boats were dark and mysterious others noisy and lighted up with torches the friends slid in through this congestion of embarkation and landed in their turn the palace was surrounded with water but a kind of staircase had been fixed to the lower walls and the only difference was that instead of entering by the doors people entered by the windows thus did athos and aramis make their appearance in the antechamber where about a dozen noblemen were collected in waiting good heavens said aramis to athos does the coadjutor intend to indulge himself in the pleasure of making us cool our hearts off in his antechamber my dear friend we must take people as we find them the coadjutor is at this moment one of the seven kings of paris and has a court let us send in our names and if he does not send us a suitable message we will leave him to his own affairs or those of france let us call one of these lackeys with a demi pistole in the left hand exactly so cried aramis ah if i'm not mistaken here's bazin come here fellow bazin who was crossing the antechamber majestically in his clerical dress turned around to see who the impertinent gentleman was who thus addressed him but seeing his friends he went up to them quickly and expressed delight at seeing them a truce to compliments said aramis we want to see the coadjutor and instantly as we are in haste certainly sir uh, it is not such lords as you are who are allowed to wait in the antechamber only just now he has a secret conference with monsieur de broy de broy cried the friends tis then useless our seeing monsieur le coadjutor this evening said aramis so we give it up and they hastened to quit the palace followed by bazin who was lavish of bows and compliments well said athos when aramis and he were in the boat again are you beginning to be convinced that we should have done a bad turn to all these people in arresting mazarin you are wisdom incarnate athos aramis replied what had especially been observed by the two friends was the little interest taken by the court of france in the terrible events which had occurred in england which they thought should have arrested the intention of all europe in fact aside from a poor widow and a royal orphan who wept in the corner of the louvre no one appeared to be aware that charles i had ever lived and that he had perished on the scaffold the two friends made an appointment for ten o'clock on the following day for though the night was well advanced when they reached the door of the hotel 
Aramis said that he had certain important visits to make, and left Athos to enter alone. At ten o'clock the next day they met again. Athos had been out since six o'clock. "'Well, have you any news?' Athos asked. "'Nothing. No one has seen D'Artagnan, and Porthos has not appeared. Have you anything?' "'Nothing. The devil,' said Aramis. "'In fact,' said Athos, "'this delay is not natural. They took the shortest route, and should have arrived before we did.' add to that d'artagnan's rapidity in action and that he is not the man to lose an hour knowing that we were expecting him he expected you will remember to be here on the fifth and here we are at the ninth this evening the margin of possible delay expires what do you think should be done asked athos if we have no news of them tonight pardieu we must go and look for them all right but raoul said aramis a light cloud passed over the count's face raoul gives me much uneasiness he said he received yesterday a message from the prince de conde he went to meet him at saint cloud and has not returned have you seen madame de chevreuse she was not at home and you aramis you were going i think to visit madame de longueville i did go there well she was no longer there but she had left her new address where was she guess i give you a thousand chances how should i know where the most beautiful and active of the frondes was at midnight for i presume it was when you left me that you went to visit her at the hotel de ville my dear fellow what at the hotel de ville has she then been appointed provost of merchants no but she has become queen of paris ad interim and since she could not venture at once to establish herself in the palais royal or the tuileries she is installed at the hotel de ville where she is on the point of giving an heir or an heiress to that dear duke you didn't tell me of that aramis really it was my forgetfulness then pardon me now asked athos what are we to do with ourselves till evening here we are without occupation it seems to me you forget my friend that we have work cut out for us in the direction of charenton and i hope to see monsieur de chatillon whom i've hated for a long time there why have you hated him because he is the brother of coligny ah true he who presumed to be a rival of yours for which he was severely punished that ought to satisfy you yes but it does not i am rancorous the only stigma that proves me to be a churchman do you understand you understand that you are in no way obliged to go with me come now said athos you are joking in that case my dear friend if your resolve to accompany me there is no time to lose the drum beats i observe cannon on the road i saw the citizens in the order of battle in the place of the hotel de ville certainly the fight will be in the direction of charenton as the duc de chatillon said i suppose said athos that last night's conferences would modify those warlike arrangements no doubt 
but they will fight none the less, if only to mask the conferences. Poor creatures, said Athos, who are going to be killed in order that Monsieur de Bouillon may have his estate at Sedan restored to him, that the reversion of the admiralty may be given to the Duc de Beaufort, and that the coadjutor may be made a cardinal. Come, come, dear Athos, confess that you would not be so philosophical if your Raoul were to be involved in this affair. Perhaps you speak the truth, Aramis. Well, let us go, then, where the fighting is, for that is the most likely place to meet with D'Artagnan, Porthos, and possibly even Raoul. Stop. There are a fine body of citizens passing. Quite attractive. By Jupiter. And their captain. See, he has the true military style. What? Ho! said Grimaud. What? asked Athos. Planchet, sir. Lieutenant yesterday, said Aramis. Captain today, colonel doubtless tomorrow. In a fortnight the fellow will be marshal of France. Question him about the fight, said Athos. Planchet, prouder than ever of his new duties, deigned to explain to the two gentlemen that he was ordered to take up his position on the Place Royale with two hundred men, forming the rear of the army of Paris, and to march on Charenton when necessary. This day will be a warm one, said Planchet in a warlike tone. No doubt, said Aramis, but it is far from here to the enemy. Sir, the distance will be diminished, said a subordinate. Aramis saluted, then turning toward Athos. I don't care to camp on the Place Royale with all these people, he said. Shall we go forward? We shall see better what is going on. And then Monsieur de Chatillon will not come to the Place Royale to look for you. Come then, my friend. We will go forward. Haven't you something to say to Monsieur de Flamarin on your own account? My friend, said Athos, I have made a resolution never to draw my sword, save when it is absolutely necessary. And how long ago was that? When I last drew my poignard. Ah, good. Another souvenir of Monsieur Mordaunt. Well, my friend, nothing new is lacking except that you should feel remorse for having killed that fellow. Hush, said Athos putting a finger on his lips with the sad smile peculiar to him. Let us talk no more of Mordaunt. It will bring bad luck. And Athos set forward toward Charenton, followed closely by Aramis. End of chapter 77 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter 78 of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume 2, Twenty Years After, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Battle of Charenton As Athos and Aramis proceeded, and passed different companies on the road, they became aware that they were arriving near the field of battle. "'Ah, my friend!' cried Athos suddenly. "'Where have you brought us?' I fancy I perceive around us faces of different officers in the royal army. Is not that the Duc de Chatillon himself coming toward us with his brigadiers? Good day, sir, said the Duke, advancing. You are puzzled by what you see here, but one word will explain everything. There is now a truce and a conference. 
the prince monsieur de retz the duc de beaufort the duc de bouillon are taking over public affairs now one of two things must happen either matters will not be arranged or they will be arranged in which last case i shall be relieved of my command and we shall still meet again sir said aramis you speak to the point allow me to ask you a question where are the plenipotentiaries at charenton in the second house on the right on entering from the direction of paris and was this conference arraigned beforehand no gentlemen it seems to be the result of certain propositions which mazarin made last night to the parisians athos and aramis exchanged smiles for they well knew what those propositions were to whom they had been made and who had made them and that house in which the plenipotentiaries are asked athos belongs to to monsieur de chanleu who commands your troops at charenton i say your troops for i presume that you gentlemen are frondeurs yes almost said aramis we are for the king and the princes added athos we must understand each other said the duke the king is with us and his generals are the duke of orleans and the prince de cond although i must add tis almost impossible now to know to which party any one belongs yes answered athos but his right place is in our ranks with the prince de conti de beaufort d'elbeuf and du Bion. but sir supposing that the conference is broken off are you going to try to take charenton such are my orders sir since you command the cavalry pardon me i am commander-in-chief so much the better you must know all your officers i mean those more distinguished why yes very nearly will you kindly tell me then if you have in your command the chevalier d'artagnan lieutenant in the musketeers no sir he is not with us he left paris more than six weeks ago and is believed to have gone on a mission to england i knew that but i supposed he had returned no sir no one has seen him i can answer positively on that point for the musketeers belong to our forces and monsieur de cambon the substitute for monsieur d'artagnan still holds his place the two friends looked at each other you see said athos it is strange said aramis it is absolutely certain that some misfortune has happened to them on the way if we have no news of them this evening tomorrow we must start athos nodded affirmatively then turning and monsieur de braglone a young man fifteen years of age attached to the prince de conde has he the honor of being known to you diffident in allowing the sarcastic aramis to perceive how strong were his paternal feelings yes surely he came with the prince a charming young man he is one of your friends then monsieur le comte yes sir answered athos agitated so much so that i wish to see him if possible quite possible sir do me the favor to accompany me and i will conduct you to headquarters hello there cried aramis turning around what a noise behind us a body of cavaliers is coming toward us said chatillon i recognize the coadjutor by his frondist hat and i the duc de beaufort by his white plume of ostrich feathers they are coming full gallop the prince is with them 
Ah, he is leaving them. They are beating the rappel, cried Chatillon. We must discover what is going on. In fact, they saw the soldiers running to their arms. The trumpets sounded, the drums beat. The Duc de Beaufort drew his sword. On his side, the prince sounded a rappel, and all the officers of the royalist army, mingling momentarily with the Parisians' troops, ran to meet him. "'Gentlemen!' cried Chatillon. "'The truce is broken. That is evident. They are going to fight. Go, then, into Charenton, for I shall begin in a short time. There's a signal from the prince!' The cornet of a troop had, in fact, just raised the standard of the prince. "'Farewell! To the next time we meet!' cried Chatillon, and he set off full gallop. Athos and Aramis turned also, and went to salute the coadjutor and the Duc de Beaufort. As to the Duc de Bouillon, he had such a fit of gout as obliged him to return to Paris in a litter, but his place was well filled by the Duc d'Elbeuf, and his four sons ranged around him like a staff. Meantime, between Charenton and the royal army was left a space which looked ready to serve as a last resting place for the dead. "'Gentlemen,' cried the coadjutor, tightening his sash, which he wore after the fashion of the ancient military prelates, over his archiepiscopal simar. "'There's the enemy approaching. Let us save them half of their journey.' And without caring whether he were followed or not, he set off. His regiment, which bore the name of the regiment of Corinth, from the name of his archbishopric, darted after him and began the fight.' Monsieur de Beaufort sent his cavalry toward Etampe, and Monsieur de Chanleu, who defended the place, was ready to resist an assault, or if the enemy were repulsed, to attempt a sortie. The battle soon became general, and the coadjutor performed miracles of valor. His proper vocation had always been the sword, and he was delighted whenever he could draw it from the scabbard, no matter for whom or against whom. Chanleu, whose fire at one time repulsed the royal regiment, thought that the moment was come to pursue it, but it was reformed and led again to the charge by the Duc de Chatillon in person. This charge was so fierce, so skillfully conducted, that Chanleu was almost surrounded. He commanded a retreat which began, step by step, foot by foot. Unhappily, in an instant he fell, mortally wounded. De Chatillon saw him fall and announced it in a loud voice to his men, which raged their spirits and completely disheartened their enemies, so that every man thought only of his own safety and tried to gain the trenches where the coadjutor was trying to reform his disorganized regiment. Suddenly a squadron of cavalry galloped up to encounter the royal troops, who were entering Pele Mele, the entrenchments with the fugitives. Athos and Aramis charged at the head of their squadrons. Aramis with sword and pistol in his hands, Athos with his sword in his scabbard, his pistol in his saddlebags, calm and cool as if on the parade, except that his noble and beautiful countenance became sad as he saw slaughtered so many men who were sacrificed on the one side to the obstinacy of royalty and on the other to the personal rancor of the princess. Aramis, on the contrary, struck right and left and was almost delirious with excitement. His bright eyes kindled and his mouth, so finely formed, assumed a wicked smile. Every blow he aimed was sure, and his pistol finished the deed, annihilated the wounded wretch who tried to rise again. On the opposite side, two cavaliers, one covered with a gilt cuirass, the other wearing simply a buff doublet, from which fell the sleeves of a vest of blue velvet, charged in front. The cavalier in the gilt cuirass fell upon Aramis, and struck a blow that Aramis parried with his wanted skill. "'Ah, tis you, Monsieur de Chatillon,' 
cried the chevalier. "'Welcome to you. I expected you.' "'I hope I have not made you wait too long, sir,' said the duke. "'At all events, here I am.' "'Monsieur de Chatillon,' cried Aramis, taking from his saddlebags a second pistol. "'I think if your pistols have been discharged, you are a dead man.' "'Thank God, sir, they are not.' And the duke, pointing his pistol at Aramis, fired. But Aramis bent his head the instant he saw the duke's finger press the trigger, and the ball passed without touching him. "'Ah, you've missed me,' cried Aramis. "'But I swear to heaven, I will not miss you.' "'If I give you time,' cried the duke, spurring on his horse and rushing upon him with his drawn sword. Aramis awaited him with that terrible smile, which was peculiar to him on such occasions, and Athos, who saw the duke advancing toward Aramis with the rapidity of lightning, was just going to cry out, "'Fire! Fire, then!' when the shot was fired. De Chatillon opened his arms and fell back on the crupper of his horse. The ball had entered his breast through a notch in the cuirass. "'I am a dead man!' he said, and fell from his horse to the ground. "'I told you this. I am now grieved I have kept my word. Can I be of any use to you?' Chatillon made a sign with his hand, and Aramis was about to dismount when he received a violent shock. "'Twas a thrust from a sword, but his cuirass turned aside the blow. He turned around and seized his new antagonist by the wrist when he started back, exclaiming, "'Raoul!' "'Raoul!' cried Athos. The young man recognized at the same instant the voices of his father and the Chevalier d'Herblay. Two officers in the Parisian forces rushed at that instant on Raoul, but Aramis protected him with his sword. "'My prisoner!' he cried. Athos took his son's horse by the bridle and led him forth out of the melee. At this crisis of the battle, the prince, who had been seconding to Chatillon in the second line, appeared in the midst of the fight. His eagle eye made him known, and his blows proclaimed the hero. On seeing him, the regiment of Corinth, which the coadjutor had not been able to reorganize in spite of all his efforts, threw itself into the midst of the Parisian forces, put them into confusion, and re-entered Charenton flying. The coadjutor, dragged along with his fugitive forces, passed near the group formed by Athos, Raoul, and Aramis. Aramis could not in his jealousy avoid being pleased at the coadjutor's misfortune, and was about to utter some bon mot more witty than correct when Athos stopped him. "'On, on!' he cried. "'This is no moment for compliments, or rather, back, for the battle seems to be lost by the frondeurs.' "'It is a matter of indifference to me,' said Aramis. I came here only to meet de Chatillon. I have met with him. I am contented. Tis something to have met de Chatillon in a duel. And besides, we have a prisoner, said Athos, pointing to Raoul. The three cavaliers continued their road on full gallop. What were you doing in the battle, my friend? inquired Athos of the youth. Twas not your right place, I think, as you were not equipped for an engagement. I had no intention of fighting today, sir. I was charged, indeed, with a mission to the cardinal, and had set out for Roya, when, seeing Monsieur de Chatillon charge, an invincible desire possessed me to charge at his side. It was then that he told me two cavaliers of the Parisian army were seeking me, and named the Comte de la Fere. What? You knew we were there, and yet wished to kill your friend the Chevalier? "'I did not recognize the Chevalier in armor, sir,' said Raoul, blushing, "'though I might have known him by his skill and coolness in danger.' 
"'Thank you for the compliment, my young friend,' replied Aramis. "'We can see from whom you learned courtesy. "'Then you were going to Roy?' "'Yes. I have a dispatch from the prince to his eminence.' "'You must still deliver it,' said Athos. "'No false generosity, Count. "'The fate of our friends, to say nothing of our own, "'is perhaps in that very dispatch.' "'This young man must not, however, fail in his duty.' said athos in the first place count this youth is our prisoner you seem to forget that what i propose to do is fair in war the vanquished must not be dainty in the choice of means give me the dispatch raoul the young man hesitated and looked at athos as if seeking to read in his eyes a rule of conduct give him the dispatch raoul you are the chevalier's prisoner raoul gave it up reluctantly Aramis instantly seized and read it. "'You,' he said, "'you who are so trusting, read and reflect that there is something in this letter important for us to see.' Athos took the letter, frowning, but an idea that he should find something in this letter about D'Artagnan conquered his unwillingness to read it. "'My lord, I shall send this evening to your eminence in order to reinforce the troop of Monsieur de Comminges, the ten men you demand.' They are good soldiers, fit to confront the two violent adversaries who address and resolution your eminence is fearful of. Oh, cried Athos. Well, said Aramis, what think you about these two enemies whom it requires, besides Cominges' troops, ten good soldiers to confront? Are they not as alike as two drops of water to D'Artagnan and Porthos? "'We'll search Paris all day long,' said Athos. "'And if we have no news this evening, "'we will return to the road to Picardy. "'I feel no doubt that, thanks to D'Artagnan's ready invention, "'we shall then find some clue which will solve our doubts.' "'Yes, let us search Paris, "'and especially inquire of Planchet "'if he has yet heard from his former master.' "'That poor Planchet. "'You speak of him very much at your ease, Aramis.' He has probably been killed. All those fighting citizens went out to battle, and they have been massacred. It was then, with a sentiment of uneasiness, whether Planchet, who alone could give them information, was alive or dead, that the friends returned to the Place Royale. To their great surprise, they found the citizens still encamped there, drinking and bantering each other, although doubtless mourned by their families, who thought they were at Charenton in the thickest of the fighting. Athos and Aramis again questioned Planchet, but he had seen nothing of D'Artagnan. They wished to take Planchet with them, but he could not leave his troop, who at five o'clock returned home, saying that they were returning from the battle, whereas they had never lost sight of the bronze equestrian statue of Louis the Thirteenth. End of chapter seventy-eight. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter seventy nine of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume two, twenty years after, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Road to Picardy. On leaving Paris, Athos and Aramis well knew that they would be encountering great danger. But we know that for men like these there could be no question of danger. Besides, they felt that the denouement of this second Odyssey was at hand and that there remained but a single effort to make. Besides, there was no tranquillity in Paris itself. 
provisions began to fail and whenever one of the prince de conti's generals wished to gain more influence he got up a little popular tumult which he put down again and thus for the moment gained a superiority over his colleagues in one of these risings the duc de beaufort pillaged the house and library of mazarin in order to give the populace as he put it something to gnaw at athos and aramis left paris after this coup d'etat which took place on the very evening of the day in which the parisians had been beaten at charenton they quitted paris beholding it abandoned to extreme want bordering on famine agitated by fear torn by faction parisians and frondeurs as they were the two friends expected to find the same misery the same fears the same intrigue in the enemy's camp but what was their surprise after passing saint denis to hear that at saint germain people were singing and laughing and leading generally cheerful lives the two gentlemen traveled by byways in order not to encounter the mazarinists scattered about the isle of france and also to escape the frondeurs who were in possession of normandy and who never failed to conduct captives to the duc de longueville in order that he might ascertain whether they were friends or foes having escaped these dangers they returned by the main road to boulogne at abbeville and followed it step by step examining every track nevertheless they were still in a state of uncertainty several inns were visited by them several innkeepers questioned without a single clue being given to guide their inquiries when at montreuil athos felt upon the table that something rough was touching his delicate fingers he turned up the cloth and found these hieroglyphs carved upon the wood with a knife p o r t d apostrophe a r t second february this is capital said athos to aramis we were to have slept here but we cannot we must push on they rode forward and reached abbeville there the great number of inns puzzled them they could not go to all how could they guess in which those whom they were seeking had stayed trust me said aramis do not expect to find anything in abbeville if we had only been looking for porthos porthos would have stationed himself in one of the finest hotels and we could easily have traced him but d'artagnan is devoid of such weaknesses porthos would have found it very difficult even to make him see that he was dying of hunger he has gone on his road as inexorable as fate and we must seek him somewhere else they continued their route it had now become a weary and almost hopeless task and had it not been for the threefold motives of honor friendship and gratitude implanted in their hearts our two travelers would have given up many a time their rides over the sand their interrogatories of the peasantry and their close inspection of faces they proceeded thus to peron athos began to despair his noble nature felt that their ignorance was a sort of reflection upon them they had not looked carefully enough for their lost friends they had not shown sufficient pertinacity in their inquiries they were willing and ready to retrace their steps when in crossing the suburb which leads to the gates of the town upon a white wall which was at the corner of a street turning around the rampart athos cast his eyes upon a drawing in black chalk which represented with the awkwardness of a first attempt two cavaliers riding furiously one of them carried a roll of paper on which were written these words they are following us oh exclaimed athos here it is as clear as day 
Pursued as he was, D'Artagnan would not have tarried here five minutes, had he been pressed very closely, which gives us hopes that he may have succeeded in escaping. Aramis shook his head. Had he escaped, we should either have seen him or have heard him spoken of. You are right, Aramis. Let us travel on. To describe the impatience and anxiety of these two friends would be impossible. Uneasiness took possession of the tender, constant heart of Athos, and fearful forecasts were the torment of the impulsive Aramis. They galloped on for two or three hours as furiously as the cavaliers on the wall. All at once, in a narrow pass, they perceived that the road was partially barricaded by an enormous stone. It had evidently been rolled across the pass by some arm of giant strength. Aramis stopped. Oh, he said, looking at the stone, this is the work of either Hercules or Porthos. Let us get down, Count, and examine this rock. They both alighted. The stone had been brought with the evident intention of barricading the road, but someone, having perceived the obstacle, had partially turned it aside. With the assistance of Blaisois and Grimaud, the friends succeeded in turning the stone over. Upon the side, next the ground, were scratched the following words. Eight of the light dragoons are pursuing us. If we reach Compiègne, we shall stop at the peacock. It is kept by a friend of ours. At last we have something definite, said Athos. Let us go to the peacock. Yes, answered Aramis. But if we are to get there, we must rest our horses, for they are almost broken-winded. Aramis was right. They stopped at the first tavern and made each horse swallow a double quantity of corn steeped in wine. They gave them three hours' rest and then set off again. The men themselves were almost dead with fatigue, but hope supported them. In six hours they reached Compiègne and alighted at the peacock. The host proved to be a worthy man, as bald as a Chinaman. They asked him if some time ago he had not received in his house two gentlemen who were pursued by dragoons. Without answering, he went out and brought in the blade of a rapier. "'Do you know that?' he asked. Athos merely glanced at it. "'Tis D'Artagnan's sword,' he said. "'Does it belong to the smaller or the larger of the two? asked the host. "'To the smaller.' "'I see that you are the friends of these gentlemen.' "'Well, what has happened to them?' They were pursued by eight of the light dragoons, who rode into the courtyard before they had time to close the gate. Eight, said Aramis. It surprises me that two such heroes as Porthos and D'Artagnan should have allowed themselves to be arrested by eight men. The eight men would doubtless have failed, had they not been assisted by twenty soldiers of the regiment of Italians in the king's service who are in garrison in this town so that your friends were overpowered by numbers arrested were they inquired athos is it known why no sir they were carried off instantly and had not even time to tell me why but as soon as they were gone i found this broken sword blade as i was helping to raise two dead men and five or six wounded ones "'Tis still a consolation that they were not wounded,' said Aramis. "'Where were they taken?' asked Athos. "'Toward the town of Louvre,' was the reply. 
the two friends having agreed to leave blaisois and grimaud at campagne with the horses resolved to take post-horses and having snatched a hasty dinner they continued their journey to louvre here they found only one inn in which was consumed a liquor which preserves its reputation to our time and which is still made in that town let us alight here said athos d'artagnan will not have let slip an opportunity of drinking a glass of this liquor and at the same time leaving some trace of himself they went into the town and asked for two glasses of liquor at the counter as their friends must have done before them the counter was covered with a plate of pewter upon this plate was written with the point of a large pin roya d they went to roya cried aramis let us go to roya said athos it is to throw ourselves into the wolf's jaws said aramis had i been as great a friend of jonah as i am of d'artagnan i should have followed him even into the inside of the whale itself and you would have done the same aramis certainly but you make me out better than i am dear count had i been alone i should scarcely have gone to roya without great caution but where you go i go they then set off for roya here the deputies of the parliament had just arrived in order to enter upon those famous conferences which were to last three weeks and produced eventually that shameful peace at the conclusion of which the prince was arrested roya was crowded with advocates presidents and councillors who came from the parisians and on the side of the court with officers and guards it was therefore easy in the midst of this confusion to remain as unobserved as any one might wish besides the conferences implied a truce and to arrest two gentlemen even frondeurs at this time would have been an attack on the rights of the people the two friends mingled with the crowd and fancied that every one was occupied with the same thought that tormented them they expected to hear some mention made of d'artagnan or of porthos but every one was engrossed by articles and reforms it was the advice of athos to go straight to the minister my friend said aramis take care our safety lies in our obscurity if we were to make ourselves known we should be sent to rejoin our friends in some deep ditch from which the devil himself could not take us out let us try not to find them out by accident but from our notions arrested at compagne they have been carried to roy at roy they have been questioned by the cardinal who has either kept them near him or sent them to saint germain as to the bastille they are not there though the bastille is especially for the frondeurs they are not dead for the death of d'artagnan would make a sensation as for porthos i believe him to be eternal like god although less patient do not let us despond but wait at roya for my conviction is that they are at roya but what ails you you are pale it is this answered athos with a trembling voice i remember that at the castle of roya the cardinal richelieu had some horrible oubliettes constructed oh never fear said aramis richelieu was a gentleman our equal in birth our superior in position he could like the king touch the greatest of us on the head and touching them make such heads shake on their shoulders but mazarin is a low-born rogue who can at the most take us by the collar like an archer be calm for i am sure that d'artagnan and porthos are at roya alive and well but resumed athos 
I recur to my first proposal. I know no better means than to act with candor. I shall seek, not Mazarin, but the queen, and say to her, Madame, restore to us your two servants and our two friends. Aramis shook his head. "'Tis a last resource, but let us not employ it till it is imperatively called for. Let us rather persevere in our researches. They continued their inquiries, and at last met with a light dragoon who had formed one of the guard which had escorted D'Artagnan to Roya. Athos, however, perpetually recurred to his proposed interview with the queen. "'In order to see the queen,' said Aramis, "'we must first see the cardinal.' And when we have seen the cardinal, remember what I tell you, Athos. We shall be reunited to our friends, but not in the way you wish. Now, that way of joining them is not very attractive to me, I confess. Let us act in freedom, that we may act well and quickly. I shall go, he said, to the queen. Well, then, answered Aramis, pray tell me a day or two beforehand that i may take that opportunity of going to paris to whom sounds how do i know perhaps to madame de longueville she is all-powerful yonder she will help me but send me word should you be arrested for then i will return directly why do you not take your chance and be arrested with me no i thank you should we by being arrested be all four together again we should not i am not sure be twenty-four hours in prison without getting free my friend since i killed chatillon adored of the ladies of saint germain i am too great a celebrity not to fear a prison doubly the queen is likely to follow mazarin's counsels and to have me tried do you think she loves this italian so much as they say she does did she not love an englishman my friend she is a woman no no you are deceived she is a queen dear friend i shall sacrifice myself and go and see anne of austria adieu athos i am going to raise an army for what purpose to come back and besiege roy where shall we meet again at the foot of the cardinal's gallows the two friends departed aramis to return to paris athos to take measures preparatory to an interview with the queen end of chapter seventy nine recording by john van stan savannah georgia Chapter eighty of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume two, twenty years after, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Gratitude of Anne of Austria. Athos found much less difficulty than he had expected in obtaining an audience with Anne of Austria. It was granted and was to take place after her morning's levee, at which, in accordance with his rights of birth, he was entitled to be present. A vast crowd filled the apartments of Saint-Germain, and had never at the Louvre had so large a court, but this crowd represented chiefly the second class of nobility, while the Prince de Conti, the Duc de Beaufort, and the coadjutor assembled around them the first nobility of France. The greatest possible gaiety prevailed at court. 
The particular characteristic of this was that more songs were made than cannons fired during its continuance. The court made songs on the Parisians, and the Parisians on the court, and the casualties, though not mortal, were painful, as are all wounds inflicted by the weapon of ridicule. In the midst of this seeming hilarity, nevertheless, people's minds were uneasy. Was Mazarin to remain the favorite and minister of the queen? Was he to be carried back by the wind which had blown him there? Everyone hoped so, so that the minister felt that all around him, beneath the homage of the courtiers, lay a fund of hatred, ill-disguised by fear and interest. He felt ill at ease and at a loss what to do. Conda himself, whilst fighting for him, lost no opportunity of ridiculing, of humbling him. The queen, on whom he threw himself as sole support, seemed to him now not much to be relied upon. When the hour appointed for the audience arrived, Athos was obliged to stay until the queen, who was waited upon by a new deputation from Paris, had consulted with her minister as to the propriety and manner of receiving them. All were fully engrossed with the affairs of the day. Athos could not therefore have chosen a more inauspicious moment to speak of his friends, poor atoms, lost in that raging whirlwind. But Athos was a man of inflexible determination. He firmly adhered to a purpose once formed, when it seemed to him to spring from conscience and to be prompted by a sense of duty. He insisted on being introduced, saying that although he was not a deputy from Monsieur de Conti or Monsieur de Beaufort or Monsieur de Bouillon or Monsieur d'Albeuf or the coadjutor or Madame de Longueville or Broussel or the Parliament, and although he had come on his own private account, he nevertheless had things to say to Her Majesty of the utmost importance. The conference being finished, the Queen summoned him to her cabinet. Athos was introduced and announced by name. It was a name that too often resounded in Her Majesty's ears, and too often vibrated in her heart for Anne of Austria not to recognize it. Yet she remained impassive, looking at him with that fixed stare which is tolerated only in women who are queens, either by the power of beauty or by the right of birth. "'It is then a service which you propose to render us, Count?' asked Anne of Austria, after a moment's silence. "'Yes, madame, another service,' said Athos, shocked that the queen did not seem to recognize him. Athos had a noble heart, and made therefore but a poor courtier. Anne frowned. Mazarin, who was sitting at a table folding up papers as if he had only been a secretary of state, looked up. "'Speak,' said the queen. Mazarin turned again to his papers. "'Madame,' resumed Athos, two of my friends, named D'Artagnan and Monsieur de Villon, sent to England by the cardinal, suddenly disappeared when they set foot on the shores of France. No one knows what has become of them.' "'Well,' said the queen, "'I address myself, therefore, first to the benevolence of your majesty, that I may know what has become of my friends, reserving to myself, if necessary, the right of appealing hereafter to your justice. Sir, replied Anne, with a degree of haughtiness which to certain persons became impertinence, this is the reason that you trouble me in the midst of so many absorbing concerns, an affair for the police. Well, sir, you ought to know that we no longer have a police, since we are no longer at Paris. I think your majesty will have no need to apply to the police to know where my friends are, but that if you will deign to interrogate the cardinal, 
he can reply without any further inquiry than into his own recollections. But, God forgive me, cried Anne, with that disdainful curl of the lips peculiar to her. I believe that you are yourself interrogating. Yes, madame, here I have a right to do so, for it concerns Monsieur d'Artagnan. D'Artagnan! He repeated in such a manner as to bow the regal brow with recollections of the weak and erring woman. The cardinal saw that it was now high time to come to the assistance of Anne. Sir, he said, I can tell you what is at present unknown to Her Majesty. These individuals are under arrest. They disobeyed orders. I beg of your majesty, then, said Athos calmly and not replying to Mazarin, to quash these arrests of Messieurs d'Artagnan and du Vallon. What you ask is merely an affair of discipline, and does not concern me, said the queen. Monsieur d'Artagnan never made such an answer as that when the service of your majesty was concerned, said Athos, bowing with great dignity. He was going toward the door when Mazarin stopped him. "'You, too, have been in England, sir,' he said, making a sign to the queen, who was evidently going to issue a severe order. "'I was a witness of the last hours of Charles I, poor king. Culpable, at the most of weakness, how cruelly punished by his subjects. Thrones are at this time shaken, and it is to little purpose for devoted hearts to serve the interests of princes. This is the second time that Monsieur d'Artagnan has been in England.' He went the first time to save the honor of a great queen, the second to avert the death of a great king. "'Sir,' said Anne to Mazarin, with an accent from which daily habits of dissimulation could not entirely chase the real expression, "'see if we can do something for these gentlemen.' "'I wish to do, madame, all that your majesty pleases.' "'Do what Monsieur de la Fere requests,' That is your name, is it not, sir? I have another name, madame. I am called Athos. Madame, said Mazarin with a smile, you may rest easy. Your wishes shall be fulfilled. You hear, sir, said the queen. Yes, madame, I expected nothing less from the justice of your majesty. May I not go and see my friends? Yes, sir. You shall see them, but, apropos, you belong to the Fronde, do you not? Madame, I serve the king. Yes, in your own way. My way is the way of all gentlemen, and I know only one way, answered Athos haughtily. Go, sir, then, said the queen. You have obtained what you wish, and we know all we desire to know. Scarcely, however, had the tapestry closed behind Athos, when she said to Mazarin, "'Cardinal, desire them to arrest that insolent fellow before he leaves the court.' "'Your Majesty,' answered Mazarin, "'desires me to do only what I was going to ask you to let me do. These bravos, who resuscitate in our epic the traditions of another reign, are troublesome, since there are two of them already there.' let us add a third athos was not altogether the queen's dupe but he was not a man to run away on suspicion above all when distinctly told that he should see his friends again 
He waited then in the antechamber with impatience till he should be conducted to them. He walked to the window and looked into the court. He saw the deputation from the Parisians enter it. They were coming to assign the definitive place for the conference and to make their bow to the queen. A very imposing escort awaited them without the gates. Athos was looking on attentively when someone touched him softly on the shoulder. "'Ah, Monsieur de Cominges,' he said. "'Yes, Count, and charged with a commission for which I beg of you to accept my excuses.' "'What is it?' "'Be so good as to give me up your sword, Count.' Athos smiled and opened the window. "'Aramis!' he cried. A gentleman turned around. Athos fancied he had seen him among the crowd. It was Aramis. He bowed with great friendship to the Count. "'Aramis!' cried Athos. "'I am arrested!' "'Good,' replied Aramis calmly. "'Sir,' said Athos, turning to Cominges and giving him politely his sword by the hilt, "'here is my sword.' Have the kindness to keep it safely for me until I quit my prison. I prize it. It was given to my ancestor by King Francis I. In his time they armed gentlemen, not disarmed them. Now, whither do you conduct me? Into my room first, replied Cominges. The queen will ultimately decide your place of domicile. Athos followed Cominges without saying a single word. End of chapter 80. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.